Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Well, good morning and I'm so glad that you've joined us here. I wanted to start with a softball for you all and just simply declare out of the gate here that your political views are wrong, right? I mean, can't we all just in these divisive times just agree uh, with that, right? Sometimes you believe things about the world how it ought to work or how you think it does work and what you believe is wrong. I mean, I, I think if you are in any way like me in this, the problem isn't that, that, that we're wrong. I mean, that's part of the issue, but the, but the bigger issue is we, we, we don't know where we're wrong. We don't know how we are wrong. We simply don't know what things we believe that need to change. You know, maybe you're wrong because of how you were raised or because of your profession or because of, of a lack of profession or because of your family or your friends or a slip of logic or maybe it's the sinful tendencies that grow in the dark places of our soul. But you are wrong somewhere. In fact, it gets worse because it's not just your political beliefs. It is your view of people, it is your strategies in relationships, and even your theological beliefs are wrong. I've said this for for many years, that uh, 5% of what I believe and what I teach uh, about God is wrong. The problem is, of course, I I just don't know what 5%, and of course, I don't even know what the real percent is. I mean, some of the views that I hold right now are wrong. So how is it that I can be so sure? Well, it's because I've changed my convictions over the years. Like things that I now hold dear, I didn't. And I suspect that will happen in the future as well. There was a time when I was in college when I didn't believe that Jesus was God or that I could trust the Bible as God's word. Well, now I do. There was a time when I was in high school when I was convinced that it was my right to use people for my own gratification. Now, I don't. There was a time in my teens when I felt that taking things that weren't mine and selling things that I shouldn't, that was all okay because, hey, it put money in my pocket. Now, I wholeheartedly disagree with those things. I mean, there was a time when I was convinced that if everyone would just listen to me, the world would be put right again. And now, 
well, actually, I still struggle with this one. Um, and so, but in my better moments, I, I actually no longer believe that that is at least entirely true. And I also know that I'm not the only one who has grown and who has changed and been, been more and more transformed into the image of Christ. There was a time when I thought that everyone could pick themselves up by their own bootstraps. And now I don't. And there was a time when I thought the system was fair and equitable. And now I don't. And there was a time when I thought the best plan to stop racism was to stop talking about it so much. And now I don't. There was a time when I thought that Christian brothers and sisters could handle their deep differences with respect and an overriding unity. And now, I'm not so sure. So yeah, at least some of your views are wrong. And at least some of my views are wrong, and at least some of what we all hold dear is wrong. And this is one of the most, it's the most frustrating things and also one of the most liberating truths in all of God's word. Because it is with this realization that we can now build bridges and do the deep soul work that is necessary so that we can grow in humility and be reconciled to God and to each other. And of course, this steady barrage of crises that we currently face they're either they're going to help transform us more into the image of God or they're going to drive us further from God's ultimate and perfect plan for our lives. So what will these crises do to you? Who will you become because of them? How will you treat people because of these crises? And how will society ultimately be changed for the better because you and I and them begin to live with Holy Spirit-fueled courage and grace? So by way of review, we're in this series, Don't Waste a Crisis. And when we planned the series, we actually thought that we were going to be talking about COVID-19. I kid you not, I know. For those of you who don't remember what that is, it was way back in May of 2020, and it was quite the deal. It was a global pandemic. Lots of people died. There was economic ruin and all sorts of anxiety, and I know it was so last month, but it really was a big deal at one point. I mean, there were there were like, you know, uh, charts we, we had to understand, like we saw them all the time and, you know, flattening these curves. And there was another version of charts, like, you know, there was a level of freaking out that we had to like, get down because it was overcoming our ability to cope. And I mean, it, it was absolutely crazy. There was something about toilet paper and, and some other things and even like virtual church or some such nonsense as that. But obviously... What we came to see is there were going to be many crises that we would be able to talk about in this series. And so we kicked it off last week from the book of James and we saw that what we needed to do was recognize and embrace the reality that crises will come. 
And this was important for us. We have to be realists about that. That's kind of what we looked at a little bit last week. And so, Christian, if you're still surprised by trials, it's really just it's time to grow up, right? Because that's a it's it's a it's you know if we're still shocked and offended every time we have to get we have to take those theological ideas out of our picture and understanding of this world. We need to yank them out and never let them grow back again. So let's be realists when it comes to these kinds of crises. And of course, we can also still be dreamers because what we learned from the book of James was that these crises will actually be able to lead us to pure joy. In order to do that, we need to persevere through them. And we will be able to count all of these trials as an ultimate joy because they will produce maturity in us, a spiritual maturity. And that maturity will actually be something that happens in this temporal world that we get to take into eternity with us. You want to talk about a crazy good investment. All of these trials, they could be redeemed for our greatest good if we allow it to be So that's by way of review. Today we're going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because it starts with a recognition that our ultimate existential crisis is that we actually all face the consequences of humanity's rebellion against God. In biblical ideas, you might say that we, in fact, are the looters of this world. We are thieves stealing God's glory for ourselves. We are the plunderers taking what isn't ours, and we're murderers who apathetically kill. That's the understanding of the scriptures. You can go back to to Genesis chapters 3 through like 11. You can go to to Romans chapter 1, and we're not going to look at all those today, but, but those are ideas. You can go look those up on uh, at another time but the good news in this whole crisis is that Jesus came and he exchanged his life for our rebellion and sin so that we could actually be brought back into God's favor it says Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all That's Christ dying for us. That God, he was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Who wants that in your relationship with God? Who wouldn't want that? See, that's the hope that Christ offers all of us. The way that St. Paul puts it, is that we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And we do that through faith and trust in the sacrifice and the work of Jesus, to be reconciled. And you notice he's imploring you. That's what he does. That's what the apostle does. He's imploring you, and that's what I want to do today. If you do not yet have a relationship with Jesus... If you don't feel like you have been reconciled to God, that your sins have been forgiven and that you are on the path toward being made more and more into the image of Jesus, then don't let this day go by without that opportunity. In the chat, we're going to drop a moment for you there that you can click on a button. You can just kind of raise, it's kind of a digital way to raise your hand and just say, you know what? I want that sort of reconciliation between me and my creator. 
And now, because of that, we can know that we're forgiven by God. And, and that means that our ultimate existential crisis is averted, which is incredibly awesome news. However, and this is a big however, we weren't simply saved so that we could look forward to a heavenly life with God. That is not what he did. It doesn't mean that we get to now do whatever we want, we get to live however we want, because all is not yet good, right? Some folks would have this idea, well, I got saved, so, you know, now I'm just kind of waiting to die. I'm hoping that, you know, my life here is just sort of like mostly comfortable until I die, and I hope when I die that it's with as little pain or hardship or anything like that as is possible, because that's, of course, what Christ promised me. That is not at all the fullness of, of the message of salvation. In fact, even in our passages here in 2 Corinthians, it says, for Christ's love compels us and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. You are now Christ's. He purchased you with his blood and now you live for him. So what does it mean? What is Christ's reconciling love? What does that love compel us to do? What does it compel us to do for him? And I am so glad you asked that because the text actually tells us. It tells us that we're reconciled to himself through Christ and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And check this out. As though God were making his appeal through us. How is it that God speaks to our world? He does it through you. He does it through me. How does God affect his reconciling desires for the planet? He does it through you. As a Christ follower, that is your call to reconcile between people and their God and between all people. So we were saved so that we can wrench the kingdom of God from its heavenly abode. And we can can see it grow and spread over every corner of the earth as it is in heaven. All right, so what does being a reconciler look like now in this historic moment? Obviously, I wish I had uh, all of the answers for you. I have been disabused of that notion a very long time ago. So what I thought I would do is I would just share some of the ruminations that have been sort of kicking around in my soul over the last couple of weeks. I think a reconciler seizes unique social moments. I mean, we've all seen these violent videos of police brutality in the past. And I have been disturbed by them in the past. I, I have been angry. I have been mad at hell and the enemy. But I've never wept. Never wept. But God wrecked me these last two weeks. I cried every day for over a week since I saw George Floyd's murder. 
I've never wept for one of the murder or abuse victims in any of the videos we've seen. And now, I am. Something, something shifted. Feels as if something is in the air. I've tried to trace sort of my own journey, trying to figure out like what, what uh, was uh, the perfect storm that sort of brought this about in my life. And I think it started with God using COVID-19 to get me watching the news. I'm, I'm not a guy, I don't watch the news like every day. I pretty much read a daily summary from the left. I read a daily summary from the right. I read a weekly magazine that is from left and right perspectives, and I just try to get a handle on what's going on in the world. But I don't watch daily news. I don't troll, you know, I don't scroll through social media, reading the news every day. But because of COVID-19, I was watching the news every day, multiple times a day, just trying to track everything that I can for whatever reason. And, of course, because I was doing that, I saw the aftermath of the murder of Ahmed Arbley. And that, it made me sigh when I saw it, a deep sigh of resignation, like, here we go again. And then I watched Cooper and the, the weaponization of whiteness in Central Park. And... I got that one, for whatever reason, it made me mad. I mean, I was already, of course, emotionally raw from the whole COVID-19 effect and because of just the, the, all the constant inflow of information that was going on. But this one, I mean, this one got me really angry. I just couldn't. I was just so frustrated. And then, of course, George Floyd. And it was the repeated cries of, I can't breathe. And it brought me back years earlier to Eric Garner. It was years. And, and not enough progress. This happens. Unique moments develop throughout history. And God places people in history for those moments. He puts his reconcilers there. And this is a unique social moment with great potential for seismic shifts in reconciliation. Seismic. In the church throughout history, we have instigated and we have ridden the waves We've done it for abandoned children, for victims of plague and poverty, for women's suffrage, for the ending of the slave trade in England to civil war and the civil rights movement here. Christians have, have seized these moments and we help bring in lasting social changes. And Christian, this can be one of those moments if you will become a reconciler. A reconciler also develops great charity. So this week, uh, me and uh, many others have been accused of not supporting good cops while encouraging violence. I find it difficult to believe that anyone could come to that conclusion, and it feels to me like one of the least charitable ways that you could kind of try to pigeonhole me and others. 
Uh, by the week, this uh, by the way, this week I have also been accused, along with many others, to not care about the plight of black and brown people. <laughs> so, and I don't tell you this to like you know, oh man, I can't believe that. It. Just that's, I'm just this is the reality of the days that we live in. And the point in all of this is that it's startling how many people will jump to the worst possible explanations about something. That's not charitable. And I think, Christians, we ought to be better than that. I mean, how many of you this week, you have seen posts and replies that you thought were tone deaf? Go ahead. Go Raise your hand. Yep. Yep. So you've seen posts and replies. You thought, all right, put your hands down. How many of you saw posts and replies that were dismissive of your views or disrespectful or rude? Go ahead and show, show your hands. Go ahead. Yep. You guys know I can't see your hands, right? I can't. There's not two ways, camera. But, but I hope you actually still did uh, raise your hands. How many of you now saw insensitive, tone-deaf, disrespectful, pugnacious posts and replies from Christians. Please, no, no show of hands. This might be one of the first and only times I'm glad to be virtual. It breaks my heart for that show of hands. I saw a debate pop up with some of my clergy colleagues about hashtag Black Lives Matter. So the issue, I guess, was apparently the actual organization and the website has some platforms that are antithetical to Christian beliefs. Not all, but there are some things. So is it charitable for us to broad brush our brothers and sisters who use the hashtag? I don't think so. That does not feel like charitable. Is it charitable to judge and to criticize those who decide that for them they're not comfortable using it because of the fullness of their platform? I think not. Now, it, just to kind of think through this with me for a minute, you, you, we have to know why so many are using the hashtag. Why? Well, because, because black lives matter. They matter to God, and they matter to Christ followers. All lives will never matter until black and brown and old and young and sick and healthy and rich and poor and in utero lives matter. And living charitably means that we assume the best and we give abundant grace while we are holding ourselves in a place of increasing humility. By the way, if you're listening to this right now and you're saying, yeah, this so applies to them, you're missing the point. A reconciler listens and loves. Remember a story I had heard a while back, and it reminded me that a reconciler has to be slow to speak and quick to listen and reckless in our love. So before the service started, we 
let you guys listen to a few minutes of Daryl Davis, an incredibly gifted musician with a an absolutely in, fantastic and inspiring life story. It actually began in the harshest of ways. He was one of uh, the only black kids in his neighborhood and in his school, and he was in a parade asked to carry the American flag as part of the Cub Scouts. And then he began to, to notice that people were throwing things at what he thought were the Cub Scouts. But of course, they weren't throwing things at the Cub Scouts. They were throwing things at him. He didn't realize this until the scout leaders came and sort of protected him and brought him to safety. And then when he went home, he's trying to understand it, and his parents had to sit him down at 10 years old and explain to him that people hated him because of the color of his skin. And a question began to plague him. He began to ask the question, how can you hate me when you don't even know me? And he spent a good portion of his life trying to seek the answers to that question. And because of that, an unlikely friendship began to form with members of the KKK. In fact, not only was, uh, were conversations started and interviews that were had, but he actually ended up getting invited to KKK rallies that he would go to and he would listen and he would talk. And what he, what he would tell us is he said that he actually saw that it was ignorance that was breeding fear, and fear was breeding hatred, and hatred was breeding destruction. That's how he phrases it. And so what he decided to do was not to start an argument, but to start a friendship. He would listen, and he would show deep respect that listening engenders in relationships. And because of that, he started seeing some of his clan friends make decisions to leave the clan. In large part because of their friendship and their conversations with a Christian man who loved them. In fact, he began collecting, I guess you could almost think of them as trophies. As clansmen would leave the clan, they would give their robes to their friend Daryl as a symbol of how this unlikely friendship had transformed their lives. You want to know what it means to be a reconciler. We listen and we love in ways that go way beyond what the world is comfortable with. Way beyond, to the point where people look at it and they go, well, that doesn't seem like a normal response because, of course, it isn't. So there it is. Jesus died for us, not simply so that he could drag our lazy butts to heaven, but rather to give us purpose and meaning here on earth as 
as reconcilers sent by him to bring people to God and each other. That is our high calling. Would you grow with me in these things? Let's pray. Lord, what we are asking of you right now, what we're asking, Lord, is that you would cause your spirit to rest upon us. What we need is the power of your reconciling love, the one that brought us sinners and rebels into your presence, into your kingdom. Lord, it was a gift beyond any mercy we could have hoped for, anything we could have expected. And yet you did it through the sacrifice of your own son. If we want to know how serious you take reconciliation, we look to the cross. We come to the Lord's table here in just a few minutes and we, we stop and we have to remember what it cost for us to be reconciled to you. And you've told us no greater love has anyone than this and we lay down our lives for our friends. Fill us, Lord, with an awareness. Pierce our hearts so that your love and your reconciliation for us will overflow our lives in abundance and it will just simply pour out in our neighborhoods, our communities, for our families, for people in our neighborhoods, for, Lord, people entirely different and even hostile to us. May we show them your reconciling power through our lives, fueled by the Spirit. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.